0: Like A- Anthony said, how many of you guys are enjoying this weather, the warming up? I think I ran more this week than I have maybe all year, just because of, of the weather. But I, I think Steph and I were getting dinner ready on, like, Monday. The 6 o'clock news was on. The weatherman was talking about how the weather was going to warm up and how awesome it was going to be. He was like, but it can mess with your immune system, so load up on vitamin C and, and all these warnings. So before we blessed the food, we prayed, could you bless our health? But uh, yeah, so if you're here and you're healthy, praise the Lord. I know a lot of people are sick this week, so let's lift them up. But then if you're here, praise God we're all healthy and worshiping him together. But if if this is your first time here or it's your first time here in a while, we've been in a series called FaceTime talking about Exodus 33 and this greater narrative of Exodus 32 through 34 where Moses has this relationship with God that's so intimate, it's described as face-to-face. And we talk about how God is defining his relationship with the Israelites in these chapters. And he's doing it through various things. He's defining it as as his presence defines his people. And he does it through covenants, showing that he wants to be present with humanity. He does it through laws, showing us how to live in relationship with him. And he does it through a system of sacrifices for when separated people, sin-separated people from his presence. And all of this culminates in these chapters and in Exodus in the tabernacle. In this house where God calls his people to worship and to sacrifice and to come into his presence. And it's interesting if you've been reading through the Bible in the year, chronologically or just from, from one end to the other, you probably read through Exodus at this point. And it's always remarkable to me how detailed the vision God gives Moses is and how detailed they were in their obedience. And, you know, just about a year or two ago, God just really began speaking to Pastor Fred and the leadership here at the church about vision for 2020 about vision for what the church needed to do by the year 2020. So we've had these cards. We've passed them out. Anthony's hit on faith promise. I've hit on faith promise. But just specifically, I want to speak to this 2020 vision because God gave this church a very specific vision for the year 2020, to plant campuses, to grow up leaders, and to reach the undevoted and the disconnected in the entire Hampton Roads region. So those people you had serving here last week in those Praxis shirts, that's from that school of leadership. This campus that we come to every weekend was planted because of money that was raised last year through the 2020 vision. So, yeah, you can give it up for the people that gave last year. If you gave last year. Amy was ready to just stand up and give like a standing O, right? (laughs) If you gave last year, we're not asking that you necessarily give again unless God really puts it on your heart. Our goal as a church is just that everybody that calls City Life their home by the year 2020 will have given something to our pursuit of the undevoted and the disconnected through the campuses we'll plant, through the people that will be attending those campuses. So continue to pray about that. We're going to collect those all through the month of March, and then the very first week of April, we will take those in and begin planning what we're going to do as we roll through to 2020. You know, my vision for, for that, for, for planning campuses, for this campus has, has been, as I've been studying these passages in Exodus. In Exodus 36, it talks about the tabernacle being built and, and the workers that were working on the tabernacle came to Moses and they, they said, look, the people are bringing much more than is needed for the completion of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. And they asked Moses, like, tell the people to stop because materials were more than enough for them to do all the work God called them to do. That's what I hope as God stirs our hearts, you know, to to look at our finances. What can I sacrifice? What can I give to further God's kingdom? But again, in these passages, in Exodus 32 through 34, we see God laying the foundation for this covenant relationship through the tabernacle. And a couple chapters earlier in Exodus with the Ten Commandments. And we see the Israelites being some stiff-necked knuckleheads just immediately after that. And in what has been our focus, we see Moses step in as an intercessor, and as a mediator through his relationship with God. Again, to review, we've been in this this passage in Exodus 33, starting in verse 7. If you've got your Bibles, you've got version, you can turn to there because we'll be there in depth tonight. But to review, Moses recognized that God's presence is what marks us, it's what makes us, it's what distinguishes us from all the other people in the world. So Moses realized, I need to make the presence of God a priority. So he establishes this tent of meeting, or as we talked about last week, I got that advice as a young believer, hey, build yourself an altar. Build a place where you can step into the presence of God and make it a priority. And then Moses established a relationship with God through this tent of meeting that was so intimate that the Bible describes it as face-to-face. You know, again, who wouldn't want to have a relationship with God that is that deep, with our creator, with our Savior, with our almighty God? But being God's friend wasn't enough for Moses. It wasn't enough for Moses. After the Israelites sinned in Exodus 32 and God threatens not to be relationally present with them, Moses takes matters into his own hands. Or more specifically, he takes matters into his own prayers. And we see it in Exodus 32, but then again we see it in Exodus 33 in these verses 7. And I'm going to read all the way through 17 tonight. Those are the later verses on the screen, but I'm going to read Exodus 33, 7 through 17. It says, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshiped each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except that you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Come on, Moses had found favor with God. Come on, he had, he had found grace in God's sight. God knew him by name, but again, it wasn't enough for him. Because Moses was surrounded by people every day, as we're surrounded by people every day, that need to experience that same favor he had. That need to experience the same hope he had. That need to experience the same relationship he had with his creator and his savior. And Moses wasn't willing to enjoy God's favor alone while the fate of other people hung in the balance. In Exodus 32, 31 through 32, just previous to this, Moses had said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. And if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses would have rather died than to see the people he was called to lead wiped out without hope. And we've said it repeatedly over the The past weeks that if our faith is solely inward focused, then it's out of focus. And it's the same with our prayer life. That's not to say we shouldn't pray for ourselves. A hefty portion of our prayers should be for our faith, for our purity, for our passion, for our purpose, and all the thing God wants to do through us. But if our faith and our prayer life is solely inward focused, then our prayer life is out of focus. Last week, we talked about the importance of Scripture in fueling our prayer life. If you want to energize your prayer life, start meditating on and memorizing Scripture, especially the Psalms. Like Eugene Peterson said, the way that babies learn vocabulary is to immerse themselves in the language and then repeat it back. We should do the same thing with the Word of God as it sparks our prayer life. But not only does Scripture fuel and inform our prayers, our prayers in many ways fuel and inform our lives. I think it was Mark Batterson who said the transcript of our prayers writes the script of our life. And when you look at great scripts, especially movie scripts, very rarely are they about somebody who is so self-absorbed, their homebodies, or they sit at home on their couch, or they never interact with anybody. If that is the case, it's usually a character who's transformed. Like ancient, not ancient westerns. Wow, let me, let me back up a little bit. Like classic westerns, the John Wayne flicks that I didn't really grow up on with the reluctant hero. One who doesn't want to get involved initially, who's only looking out for number one, but is moved by forces greater than himself to intervene. Wasn't a big Western guy, but a a space cowboy. Han Solo, yeah. If you've been living under a rock, he's from Star Wars. When you first meet Han Solo, right, he he only acts, acts heroic when it benefits him, or he gets some money out of it, or there's a princess involved. But by the end of the series, he's volunteering for these suicide missions because it'll benefit the people that he's fought alongside with. You see, when the Spirit of God truly touches our lives, we'll no longer be satisfied just being holy hermits hunkered down from those people. We won't be too reluctant to make a difference, only looking out for number one. There's this Curry Blake quote, and I like to say, if you can't say amen, say ouch and I read this and I say ouch quite often. And Curry Blake says, if your gospel isn't touching others, then it hasn't touched you. If your gospel isn't touching others, then it hasn't touched you. Because God longs for, matter of fact, he commands that the script of our lives intersects and impacts the script of those around us. He commands it. The script of our life, of our mission, should emulate that of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus's life had a mission statement or a purpose statement, I remember I was studying Luke 19 in the story of Zacchaeus for a sermon a long time ago. And the, and, and the commentary said this, this was essentially Jesus's mission statement, that I came, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And you might say, well, that's easy for him, right? He's the son of God. He's like a spiritually juiced up Liam Neeson who's coming back to take back all the people that have been taken hostage He's got a very particular skill set developed over a very long career as God, right? He's kind of got a leg up on us. And yet, Jesus calls us to the same pursuit of the lost. When he tells his disciples to shift their focus to the harvest fields, he doesn't say pray for the harvest fields because they were already ripe. He said pray for people who are ripe to act, who will work the harvest fields. And this is like Holy Spirit Red Bull for all the doers in the church. We've talked about this. The body of Christ has doers which is like, let's go do stuff. There's prayers who are like, pause, let's go pray, let's go hit our prayer clauses for an hour before we leave, right? Then there's relators who just want to talk about how you're doing, how you feel about our plan for an hour before you go do anything. But for doers, right, this is like, this gets you juiced up. But Martin Luther, who was a, a doer that recognized the value of prayer, there's a quote I think about a lot, especially as I start my day every day. He said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Come on, chief on our to-do list is seeking and saving the lost. And the question I want us to ask ourselves tonight, is it a perspective of seeking and saving present in my prayer life? Does our prayer life have a healthy dose of intercession for people that need the hope we have? We'll see tonight that it's, it was Jesus' calling. It is Jesus' calling as he intercedes for us. And it is one of the most fulfilling callings on our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. This call to intercede. There's two powerful ingredients of intercession that I want to look at tonight. The first is this, that we participate with our almighty God. So just a little uh, crowd involvement. Raise your hand if you've ever got something wrong the first time you tried it, right? Raise your hand if you're guilty of at one time or another making an impulsive emotionally charged decision. Raise your hand if you ever had somebody talk you out of something foolish, right, just this week. So look around. You're in good company. This is the human experience. We fail. We have accountability. We have people around us to help us do better. But the portrait of God in Exodus 32 through 34 is almost unsettlingly human, right? Because at first God says he's going to wipe them out. Then he says, all right, well, I'll let you guys go, but I'm not going to go with you. And then finally Moses, is convinced him, Moses convinces him to go with you. And it appears like he changes his mind repeatedly in conversations with Moses. And see, if God is, can be convinced to act in a way he didn't originally intend to act, then we can't think of him as sovereign in any true sense. He's merely powerful but not all-knowing. But God doesn't need a guidance counselor. He's neither imperfect nor impulsive. So how can God's sovereignty be reconciled with the fact, we see in the Bible again and again and again, that he changes his mind as people intercede and step into moments of praying for others. And there are different kinds of portraits of God we see in the Bible. If you read Ezekiel, you read Revelation, you see these, these moments where it's almost like they're peering into the very throne room of heaven and they're struggling to find words to even describe it. I read through Ezekiel and I'm, I think I have a pretty good imagination and I'm like, I'm trying to picture what he's saying in my head. Moments where you're just like, I don't, I don't know, I'm going to keep reading, right? But then there's moments where you see portraits of God almost expressed in in human terms. This in Exodus, it's the latter. It's called anthropomorphism, a portrait expressed in human terms. We see it in Genesis a couple times, right? God is almighty, but he rests. God knows everything, he sees everything, but he asks Adam, where are you? You see in the Bible, it talks about his face, his eyes, his ears, his hands, his legs, but he doesn't have a, a physical body. It helps us comprehend the incomprehensible, fathom the unfathomable, yet it doesn't negate the fact As Isaiah says, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. That God is eternal. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He sees the beginning. He sees the end. He's a next level know-it-all because he knows it all. And yet, at the core of who God is, God is love. And love is sympathetic. Love is moved by compassion. It's moved by empathy. This is heavy lifting theologically, so we're not going to go forever deep. But there's a verse that highlights all of this, and it confused me as a young believer, honestly. It's Matthew 6, verses 8 through 9. It's where Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. It's like, wait a second. He already knows. So when I pray, is he up there like, tell me something I don't know, or, or what's the deal? But our prayers don't surprise God. Matter of fact, he asks for them. They're not waking God up to something he's unaware of. But the mystery of prayer is that God wants to hear from us. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, yet he longs for our participation. He's actually set things up so he needs our participation. It's our gift of purpose. There are times in which God waits and wants for us to ask for things because his plan is that we work with him in the glorious process of bringing his will to pass here on earth. Abraham Heschel says, the universe is done. We see it in Genesis. The greater masterpiece, still undone. Still in the process of being created is history. For accomplishing his grand design, God asks the help of man. See, at Mount Sinai in Exodus 32 through 34, we see that God is high, he's exalted, he's almighty. But we also see in that same story that he's simultaneously near and approachable to people that would humble themselves as Moses did. He wants to be approached. So much so that he sent Jesus so that tonight, in moments like this, we can approach him. We can ask, we can seek. The focus for Exodus 32 through 34 is less on the inner workings of God and more on the role of Moses as this intercessor and this mediator for the Israelites. Why? Partially because we will never know the inner workings of God. His thoughts are higher than ours. His ways are higher than ours. And you think about it since no human being can comprehend the point of view of an infinite, timeless God interacting with a material, time-bound planet, any attempt by a human such as myself in this moment to reconcile the changeless God with the responsiveness of God we see throughout Scripture, it's going to fall short. But what we do see in Scripture is that if we pick God's sovereignty against our role in prayer and our participation with him in prayer, then we've created a false choice. Jesus himself says, God knows this then is how you should pray. So often we read the Bible and we put an or where God's put an and. Where he says, hey, I'm big enough for both. I'm sovereign and your prayer matters. I think there's a summer series, cooking where we'll work through a bunch of those. Where we put an or where God wants to put an and. He says, hey, I'm big enough for both. This isn't contradicting. I'm just that big. The fact he's sovereign, according to Jesus in Matthew 6, is an encouragement. Not a discouragement to enter into his presence and pray. Because we don't need to put on a front. We don't need to go through a ritual to jump through hoops. He knows and he hears. So don't let the participation of human beings cancel out the power and sovereignty of God. But don't let the power and sovereignty of God cancel out the meaningful participation and role you have in prayer. God is sovereign and prayer matters. The God of Scripture is big enough for both. And prayer is the first step in participating with God in his eternal plan. The entire arc of Exodus and the entire arc of the Bible is affected through Exodus because the people cried out to God in unison. Their participation in the Exodus narrative and marching to the promised land was all set in motion by prayer. And there are people around us, again daily, that are likewise in bondage, in slavery, but slavery to sin, who likewise need deliverance and likewise need a move of God that's going to be sparked by prayer. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to spark an exodus that's much bigger than just one group of people. You know, he was the lamb that was slain. And his, his blood doesn't just cover one doorpost. It covers the entire globe. Does our prayer life reflect that? Does, does our prayer life intercede for those that need the hope we have? Because we get to participate in Jesus with God in that pursuit and that exodus. Now, the, the second ingredient of intercession that's huge and I want to look at tonight is that we partner with our fellow man. Now, again, I've, Steph and I have been married five and a half years, working on six. And some of you guys have known us that entire time. Some of you guys were at our wedding. You've, you've seen us grow as a married couple. You've seen us step into ministry. And this year we had a, a pretty significant moment in our marriage, in our relationship, something that uh, is foundational for me. Um, Steph finally understands the game of football. Like we can sit down and she doesn't just go, what is going on? Why are they hitting each other? She knows what is happening, why they just punted, why they went for three instead of kicking a touch, or excuse me, instead of scoring a touchdown, right? And I'm kind of thankful it took five years into our marriage and not when she was in fifth grade, because if she was raised under her father's tutelage as a football fan, she would have been a Cowboys fan. So that's just evidence that all things work for good, right? Roman's eight just worked out in Steph's life. But last year we were blessed twice with tickets to go to a Redskins game. Once in the regular season, and then the second ticket was our our first playoff game since 2012. So the atmosphere was electric. Her eyes are big just thinking about it. Like, the, the crowd of people, there's always those people that, like, I paid for this seat. If you stand up because you're excited, I'm going to tell you to sit down. Those people got completely ignored at a playoff game. You're basically paying for a place to stand and cheer. And uh, there were other crowds there, though. There was the Skins fans versus the Packers fans who we were playing. And it was us versus them, right? As if you're at a sports arena, and, and sometimes it gets ugly, especially as inebriation gets involved. Then the crowds were the people that were slightly inebriated and the security teams escorting them out. But uh, it was chaos. Let's be serious. At one point, we were up towards the top, and I don't even think it was halftime yet, but there were guys that were pretty intoxicated. And they were maybe five rows up, four deep maybe, no bigger than me. And they were heckling this, this Green Bay fan that was right behind me. And he looked like the love child of Clay Matthews and, like, the juggernaut. This guy was big. And I don't know what they were thinking other than they weren't thinking. And after about 15 minutes of just verbal abuse, they're just expletives, just pointing out this guy. Finally, he just snaps. And he turns around, and he's ready to climb these rows, And he's got four buddies with him that, because, you know, they're good friends, start holding him back. But Steph, forever like the mom, forever trying to be a good host, have people comfortable, she offers to hold their – their beers, as they're holding back their friend. And (laughs) I made fun of her. I laughed at her. I was like, what were you doing? And she was like, well, I just didn't want beer spilled on me, right? (laughs) Because she was right next to this guy. So it was chaos. Luckily, nobody got hurt. Some of those guys got escorted out. But uh, Steph, after the game, looked at me, and she was like, I'll go to a football game again, but it might not be a playoff game, right? (laughs) Because it was crazy. And that might sound like a circus, but it's in no way unique. Because when you act as a member of a group, psychologists show that it changes how you behave. Our thoughts and behaviors towards others shift when the setting changes from me and you to us and them. There's a more aggressive template for group-on-group group interaction versus one-on-one interaction. Look no further than your Facebook timeline when political party stuff comes up, right? It goes back and forth. And in us-versus-them conflict, there's also a displacement of responsibility for harmful behavior. Groups are less personal, so we feel less personal responsible for what we say or what we do. And why do I bring this up? Because I'm passionate about a lot of stuff. The skins over the cowboys. What else? Marvel Comics over DC Comics. Chipotle over Moe's. Recently found out Cafe Rio over all those, right? Coke over Pepsi, right? Like all these things I'm passionate about. But I'm also passionate about Jesus. And we can never let our walk with Christ become about us and them. Because our walk with Christ is really about sinners and sinners. Both need Jesus. Some of them have found him already. And as Christians, when our passion displaces compassion and we find ourselves aggressively engaging with those people, we need to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves or (laughs) become wrecking balls instead of the bridges that God has called us to be. I love the author Philip Yancey. He's got a book called Prayer. Best book on prayer I've ever written. Probably excuse me, read. I wish I wrote it. Tim Keller wrote another book on prayer that I probably should read. it probably be up there with it, but, but there's a quote in this book that gives a heavy dose of perspective. He says, we, the body of Christ, has, have formed a partnership to dispense God's love and grace to others. As we experience that grace, inevitably we want to share it with others. But love does not come naturally to me, I must say. I need prayer in order to place myself within the force field of God's love, allowing God to fill me with compassion that I cannot muster on my own. This way of viewing the world changes how I pray for others. Crudely put, I once envisioned intercession as bringing requests to God that that he may not have thought of, then talking God into granting them. Now I see intercession as an increase in my awareness. When I pray for another person, I am praying for God to open my eyes so that I can see that person as God does and then enter into the stream of love that God directs towards that person. That stream of love culminates in Jesus. There's two portraits of Jesus I want to hit on, but I realized I didn't show the picture of Steph. (laughs) That was her before the game, before the madness. And no, she hadn't been intoxicated when she took that picture. She's just that crazy. But in 1 John... Two one, it says if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7.25, it says that he lives to intercede on their behalf, to look like Christ in our prayer life, to enter into his stream of love, we must intercede. People who think and act differently than us and act according to convictions that we might not share because theirs are of the world, they're not enemies. Really, they're victims, spiritually, of an enemy that we fight. Just read Ephesians 6, spells it out for us. They're specifically speaking the very people that Christ died and he came to seek and save. Not to accuse, but to advocate for. Moses, like Jesus, lived to intercede. He was hesitant at the burning bush to get involved. Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, the burning bush, no less than six times is he like, are you sure you've got the right guy? Asks it in six different ways. But here at Sinai, he's all in. He intercedes. He acts as a high priest before there ever was a high priest. He walks up that mountain and says, hey, maybe we'll find a way to make atonement for what just happened. And what does he do? He offers up himself. Again, we read in Exodus 32, 32, he says, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. And if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. It's an early prophetic image that the sacrifice for sin would be a man, but it would be Jesus. Jesus. Because Moses didn't have the capital. He didn't have the righteous, perfect life to make that sacrifice. But he was willing. He was willing. He lived to intercede. Like Jesus, as it says in Philippians 2, he didn't consider his position as something to be used to his own advantage. He said, I might be good with God, but I'm not going to leave any people behind to live without hope. And as we've been reading in Exodus 33, Moses makes this request. He says, as I continue to find favor with you, remember this nation is your people. Because God has said, hey, my presence will go with you. But is that, is, is that you singular or plural? Moses doesn't leave it up in the air. He says, hey, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us. It was we for Moses. It was us for Moses. It wasn't me and them, but we and us. He was, his, he was an advocate. He was interceding. He was part of them. He would have rather died than to see the people God called him to lead be wiped out. And because of Moses' heart to intercede, what could have been a a period or the end of the Israelite story was a comma, it was a semicolon, and God continued to use them throughout Scripture. But again, when I read Scripture, the we that I read is usually me and the hero. The we is like me and Moses, because, of course, I always live to intercede, and and, and (laughs) I'm humble, like it says of Moses. But really, so often, it's me and and the the hard-headed, me and the the stiff-necked. But one of our human instincts is to desire prominence, the role of Moses, to desire a platform. And that kind of aspiration isn't a bad thing. But we have to first grasp the fact that the highest platform God has called us to is the one when we're on our knees. That you want a high platform, embrace your knees. Pray for people. Intercede. E.M. Bounds says this, talking to men for God is a great thing. But talking to God for men is greater still. Talking to men for God is a great thing, but talking to God for men is greater still. Interceding, praying for people is one of our greatest callings. Jesus said, hey, love your enemy. One of the most simplest ways we can love somebody is praying for them. I would argue sometimes it's more effective because you're putting their life in God's hands, the almighty sovereign God. And we can quickly see them from a new perspective as we pray. Again, I'm an art history major, so this is a story about an art critic, and it speaks to perspective that prayer gives us says a distinguished art critic was studying an exquisite painting by the Italian Renaissance master, Filipino Lippi, one day. He stood in London's National Gallery, gazing at the 15th century depiction of Mary, holding the infant Jesus on her lap, with Saints Dominic and Jerome kneeling nearby. But the painting troubled him. There could be no doubting Lippi's skill, his use of color or composition, but the proportions of the picture were slightly wrong. The hills in the background seemed exaggerated as if they might topple out of the frame at any minute onto the gallery's polished floor. And the two kneeling saints just looked awkward and uncomfortable. Robert Cumming was not the first to criticize Lippi's work for its poor perspective, but he may well be the last to do so. Because at that moment, he had a revelation. It suddenly occurred to him that the problem might be his. The painting he was analyzing so callously was not just another piece of religious art hanging in a gallery alongside other comparative works, it had never been intended to come anywhere near a gallery. Lippi's painting had been commissioned as an altarpiece, intended to hang in a place of prayer. And so self-consciously, the dignified art critic in the public gallery dropped to his knees before the painting, and suddenly he saw what generations of art critics had missed. From his newfound perspective of humility, Robert Cumming found himself gazing up at a perfectly proportioned piece. The foreground had moved naturally to the background while the saints seemed settled, their awkwardness like the painting itself having turned to grace. And as for Mary, she now looked intently and kindly directly at him as he knelt at her feet between the saints Jerome and Dominic. It was not the perspective of the painting that had been wrong all these years. It was the perspective of the people looking at it. Robert Cumming on bended knee had found a beauty that Robert Cumming, the proud art critic, could not. All these years, The joke had been upon the succession of experts standing, studying, and analyzing instead of kneeling humbly in prayer. Prayer changes us. Sometimes that's the mic drop statement of people that say God can't be moved by prayer, but ultimately it's true. Prayer does change us. It shifts our perspective, and it's important because you can know all the facts, like this art critic or like the Pharisees that had the Bible memorized and still have the wrong perspective. Often the perspective shift is looking down on somebody and then you get on your knees and you start looking up to the father. (laughs) Discerning a a character deficiency in somebody is is often an invitation to pray for them. Come on, because when you hit your knees for somebody, your perspective changed. That critic wasn't the first to criticize that painting. You might not be the first to criticize that person, but you might be the first person to hit your knees and pray for them and put their life in, in God's hands. You know, I realize often I need to complain less. I need to criticize less, and I need to pray more. When I see someone living according to worldly convictions, again, it's not a call for me to draw battle lines. It's it's a call for me to draw to my knees and pray for them, put their lives in God's hands. I need more seeking and saving of the lost in my prayer life because it gives me the compassion to pair with my passion, gives me perspective to fuel my pursuit. Come on, if I could close and have the worship team come up, There was a, a headline recently in the, in the New York, I think it's the New York Times, New York Post, Daily News. It said, God isn't fixing this. It was after the San Bernardino shootings when some politicians were tweeting, pray for San Bernardino, pray for this, pray for that. And, and they were making statements on those politicians, making statements on, on their stances on gun control. But, but, her, but prayer was hit by the fire. They started attacking just, just the, the act of prayer. You know, the first and best and optimal response, no matter what your belief system is, is that when somebody is suffering, somebody is struggling, that the person that sees that experiences empathy. And for Christians, when when we feel that, when we see that, our call is to prayer. Not only does it move mountains, but sometimes that mountain is myself as I move from apathy to active empathy. You know, we talked in this week's life group that's slowly closing up. Shout out to Nate's Life Group starts next week. But we talked about in Life Group that without contact, there's no impact. And in our call to reach the world, sometimes prayer seems weak. Sometimes it might even seem easy to ignore. Sometimes it might seem like a waste of time. But there was a man named Wesley Duell, a missionary to India for some 25 years. Worked on the mission field for 68. This guy was the seek and save champion, right? He said prayer is the only adequate way to multiply our efforts fast enough To reap the harvest that God desires somehow God fits his sovereign eternal will around the prayers and acts of people microscopic in comparison sometimes we stumble before we hit our stride but like a parent teaching a child to walk or two people training for a race one person slows down for the other because that person needs to be equipped sometimes God slows down because we need to be equipped so I want to challenge you practically just as we close tonight To maintain a perspective of seeking and saving, intercession in our prayer lives. To remember that the highest platform that we're called to in life is the one on our knees. To intercede, serve people literally in prayer. And just this week, even now as we close in worship, take three people to heart that you know that are undevoted or disconnected. Maybe even get under your skin at work or wherever you go and begin to pray for them. Begin to pray for them. You'll see God move, and sometimes you'll see God move through you, as, again, you might move from apathy to empathy, as your perspective shifts from looking down to looking up. Sometimes the flaw is just as deep in our own prayer life. Prayer puts us in the posture of participation and partnership, the starting blocks of the race that we're called to, preparing us to respond and be part of the answer. So let us never forget the mission of Christ, to seek and save the lost to spark an exodus in the lives that are in bondage to sin around us, the same mission that he went on to save us. Come on again, we, we sing God of miracles, we talk about the freedom that's in the spirit, in God's presence. And if you're here tonight, and you just need to freshly, or for the first time, step into God's presence, then as we stand, as we get ready to go back into worship, as many of us, come on, as, as, as we think about those faces that we need to intercede for, if one of those faces is your own, that you need, to, you need to step into the presence of God, then again, as we stand and we get ready to worship, find me. Find Jason or Amy. There's people that want to pray for you, pray with you, stand with you, equip you. But well, come on, let's, let's step into this presence of God where we can see the miraculous happen, where we experience freedom, and let's worship him now. Come on, let's sing.